1: Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy
2: Federal and may lose value. Guess what, Will? What's that, Mango? So I was reading the story about the chess player Bobby Fischer this week. This is when he was young, and I guess he'd won a U.S. championship at the time, so he was famous, but he was also just a kid, and he didn't have that much money. And, you know, he's kind of a recluse,
3: right? Yeah, actually, I'd read that he used to play secretly online, like later in his life. And there was always so much buzz when somebody thought they noticed his style of play and and, and thought they were on to it and that they discovered that it was him.
2: Yeah, I feel like you'd see that pop up from, like, Japan or Malaysia or wherever. There these people yeah. who were just, like, so excited to have played Bobby Fischer or think they've played Bobby Fischer. But, so anyway, he's young at this time. He wants to go see a movie, and he doesn't have money for it. So he walks into the Chess and Checker Club of New York just to pick up a few extra bucks, I guess, to hustle it, right? Right. And I guess at the time it was this, uh, this large, smoke-filled crowded pool hall type place but for chess and Bobby's totally in disguise he's got a raincoat he's got his collar up sunglasses and a hat he looks ridiculous but he does (laughs) not want to be noticed so he asks a friend like do you think you can just get me into a game and the friend asks the owner across the bar and remember it's smoke filled and like Bobby's in disguise so the owner goes Tell him, no, he's just a kid. The Hustlers will eat him alive. (laughs) And so, like, Bobby Fischer is furious, and he just stomps out. Right. And this is all reported. This is a real story. But uh, when his friend tells the owner who it was, that it was Bobby Fischer who wanted a game, like, apparently the whole crowd at the place has this audible groan. I bet. And and this one guy goes, oh, man, I would have paid hundreds of dollars just to sit across from Bobby Fischer on a chessboard. No kidding? Anyway, so I I don't know much about chess, but I do love stories about it. And we're going to get into the most dangerous styles of chess, how the game moved from the battlefield to the royal court, and even why getting a billion people to play chess might be our best hope to keep away aliens. Let's dig in.
3: Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hattiker. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, writing down a list of chess openings he's trying to master. C- actually, can you read what he's got on the
2: whiteboard over there, Mango? Yeah, he's got uh, the hillbilly attack, the monkeys burn... Hippopotamus <laughs> defense? There's something called a toilet variation he's written? I don't know Yeah, what that,
3: that definitely. Yeah, it definitely says toilet variation. Well, those are all real chess opening moves. But that's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil, who also happens to be a future chess master. Not a current <laughs> chess master, but I'm confident a future chess master.
2: Yeah, he can do anything he puts his mind to. But, uh, you know, chess is one of those things I used to love as a kid. Like, I played it on my computer. We used to play it with relatives. But... I never got good at it. Like, mm-hmm. I'm probably as good as I was in second grade, but <laughs> I do love like movies and books that involve it. I, I read this great book last year. It's really slim. It's called The Chess Game, and it's by the same author that wrote The Hotel of Budapest. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't understand any of the chess strategy, but I, I was totally enamored with how the main character plays these games of chess in his head.
3: Yeah. I mean, like that's a, a real skill. I had heard about these two Silicon Valley guys who met for the first time. I want to say it was Peter Thiel and, and somebody equally famous. And anyway, the first time they met, they sat down at a restaurant and one of them said, I heard you like chess and then called out an opening play. And they actually played a full game on an imaginary board in their heads, like just these two chess savants.
2: That would be the weirdest conversation to, like, wait a table on, right? Yeah. Just hearing people call out letters and numbers. But, uh, you know, what's crazy to me is, you know... One of our friend's dads was a chess champ in Ecuador, and there are these photos of him playing, like, uh, 12 matches at a time, just moving from board to board to board and making moves super quick. Mm-hmm. And, and then there's, like, blindfold chess, which is kind of like what you're talking about. But, you know, what's weird is that a lot of people used to think that playing chess while blindfolded can actually lead to brain damage. Brain damage? So, so why do they think that? Apparently it's just so exhausting to keep track of all those pieces while also planning out your next moves. And in fact, the Soviet Union completely banned blindfold chess in 1930 because of that perceived danger. And, and actually one Russian player died during his attempt to break the world record for a number of opponents played while blindfolded. Wait, you're saying
3: people combine those things? Like they blindfold themselves, then play multiple games simultaneously? Like do, <laughs> do people still do this?
2: Yeah. And actually, a, a new world record was set less than two years ago. So, this chess grandmaster, his name's Timur Garyev, and he played 48 games of blindfold chess simultaneously over the course no of way. 23 hours. Yeah. He actually won 80% of those games. Oh and. My God. <laughs> that ridiculous along the way he was actually riding an exercise bike the whole time and in the end he pedaled apparently about 50 miles good
3: lord i mean i love that
2: they just added the exercise
3: bike as though playing 48 (laughs) simultaneous blindfold games wasn't enough i'm thinking though maybe after tristan masters the hippopotamus defense that he's going to get on this blindfold (laughs) chess train we'll see probably well, anyway, for today's show, we're going to cover chess, so we'll, we'll take a deep dive into the history of the game, how the rules developed, and why the iconic pieces look the way they do. I think I've always been curious about this, and then a little later, we'll try to figure out why Russians are so good at chess, as well as why computers might be the best players of all. Now, of course, we'll take a look at how playing chess can affect your brain and
2: just what kind of smart it actually makes you anyway. That's right. So let's jump right in and talk about the history of chess, because it actually goes quite a ways back. So most historians believe an early version of the game was invented in India about 1,500 years ago. And the first known mention of anything involving chess appears in a text from 500 C.E. And then about a century later, the game made its way to Persia, where a few different variations evolved. So the exact rules of the game and the appearances of the pieces hadn't been formalized at that time. But the pieces did have these established identities that aren't that dissimilar from what we're used today. So one of the main differences was that the game didn't lay out a royal court like it does. It was more of a battlefield back then, with the king being the only piece shared between the ancient version and the modern version.
3: I'm curious, like, do, do you know what the other pieces were in the old battlefield version?
2: Yeah, so instead of pawns you had these infantry pieces, knights were cavalry and and bishops were elephants. I think our rooks were actually chariots as well. And what about the uh, what about the queen was the queen part of the game at that point? That's a different story. I mean, we'll we'll get to that in a minute. But the short answer is that the piece would later become the queen. It was actually called the vizier or or the advisor. Mm -hmm. So if you think about Jafar, the villain from Aladdin, like that's basically what the piece was, and he was the top counselor to the ruler. But you've got to remember the rules of the game hadn't solidified, so most of the pieces didn't move exactly like they do now. So the advisor, for instance, could only move one square diagonally, which made it this much weaker piece than today's queen. Which can obviously, you know, move uh, any number of, of squares in any direction she wants. Yeah, that's interesting. So how
3: did the weakest piece in the game pretty much become the strongest? Because the queen has, you know, better moves than the king, right? I mean, I know the king can move in any direction just like the queen can, but he only moves one square at a time, which is just, I don't know, that must that would piss me off if I were the king. <laughs>
2: Yeah, but he's probably got gout, overeats, (laughs) like it all makes sense, you know. So the upset in power didn't actually happen until after the game had spread west to Europe in the early 11th century. And, And once the game hit Europe, that's when it shifted from that army on the battlefield to members of the royal court. And for a while, most of the pieces still moved more or less according to the original rules. But that changed sometime in the 1400s or so when this unknown inventor, I think it was either in Italy or Spain, introduced the rules we know today. And the most important revisions he made were to the bishop and the queen, which until then had been sort of the weakest pieces on the board, except for the pawns. And suddenly these pieces were less restricted in their movement and a whole lot stronger. And it was one of those changes that just made the game so much faster and more interesting to play. And that makes sense. And I I could see how
3: those would go over well in terms of actual gameplay, but it's a little bit surprising because if you think about it, making the queen the most powerful piece on the board, it, it feels pretty progressive for, you know, think about this was medieval times you're talking about.
2: That's true, and there were tons of sexist players that did kind of excuse the change there and said that the strength was only in her defense of the king. That's right. when her power came out. But but the reality is that queens were getting more powerful on the chessboard at the same time they were getting more powerful in real life. So so you think back to the 14th and 15th centuries, the ladies that were coming to power all over Europe were people like Elizabeth I and Mary Tudor and Queen Isabella. Well,
3: that's pretty cool to see that that would you know be mirrored on the chessboard, but. So I actually want to stick with the chess pieces for just a minute and talk about how they got these iconic designs that we're all used to seeing at this point. I mean, you know, you think about the horsehead knights and the castle-shaped rooks, because obviously during those centuries of innovation and development that you were talking about, the game was really spreading through all different regions and cultures, and there was actually no standard chess set to play with. I mean, the basic setup was there, you had a board with 64 squares and 32 pieces, and You know, I guess they made pretty similar moves, but what those pieces actually looked like or how they felt or even what they were made of. I mean, all of that varied dramatically depending on where you were playing the game. And so all of these countless varieties of styles worked well enough for a while, but you come upon the 19th century and the game has become so popular that chess clubs and competitions began cropping up all over the world. So, you can imagine it actually got pretty confusing when players from different cultures would sit down for a match and then realize that none of the opponent's pieces looked familiar to them. That would be so weird. And it's very strange. But, <laughs> and it's still just so strange that the game evolved somewhat similarly in so many places and that this was uh-huh. really the big difference. But you fast forward a bit to 1849. And there was a British architect named Nathan Cook who built this standardized set. Now it was called the Staunton Chess Set. And its pieces are actually the ones that we still know today.
2: So I am curious, like if Nathan Cook made this set, why is it called the Staunton Set? Like, who is Staunton?
3: Yeah. Well, you'd think it might be called the Cook Chess Set. But he actually decided to forego that fame and in favor of practicality. So there was a guy named Howard Staunton, who was a major player in the London chess scene at the time. And he'd organized these tournaments and clubs and was really considered one of the best players in the world. And so Cook knew how respected Staunton was in this chess community. And so he approached him and asked if Staunton's name could be used to market his new designs. And of course, Staunton was flattered and agreed as soon as he saw the pieces. And so the set was a huge hit with the public. And Really, since the 1920s, it, it's actually been the required set for all worldwide chess organizations.
2: Huh. I, I didn't realize that. So what was so revolutionary about the Staten set? Like, I, I get that it became the standard, but why is that exactly? Well, the set had a few things going for it. So for starters, it it wasn't
3: wholly unfamiliar because Cook had studied a bunch of different popular chess sets that were in use at the time and used those common traits really as starting points for his own set. And then from there, he would look to inspiration in the architecture of Victorian London, which was the city around him at the time, and also for some reason from the ruins of ancient Greece and Rome. And so take the knight, for example. The knight in the Staunton set is a great example of that influence. Like it's the only piece in the set that isn't an abstract representation of something. And instead it looks like a pretty realistic horse head. Mm. And that's because it's pretty clearly inspired by a sculpture on the east pediment of the Parthenon. So that carving depicts horses pulling the chariot of the moon goddess of Greek mythology. And so that's supposedly what the Staunton knight is based on, like this horse that drew the moon across the sky each night.
2: <laughs> Which is such a weird mishmash of things, right? Yeah. Like Victorian London, you've got like Greece and uh, Rome because that's what the culture there. is. Like <laughs> so what else was Cook
3: doing? All right, well, I actually found this breakdown in the Smithsonian of the Staunton set, and here are a few of the key features according to the article. It says, um, while some variation is tolerated, there are several key distinguishing characteristics that define a set as a Staunton. The king is topped with a cross, and as the tallest piece, it serves as a metric for the height of the other ones. The queen is topped by a crown and a ball, the bishop has a split top, and the rook is a squat castle turret. And so with all of this, Cook really established this clear and simple language with the forms that he was choosing, which not only made them easy to recognize, but pretty cheap to produce as well. And so I'm betting that all of that together is probably why the Staunton set is still you know, really the global standard today.
2: All right. Well, I know we want to jump ahead in the timeline and and talk a little bit about the rise of chess in Russia. But before we do that, I do want to run quickly through a little of its history in the U.S. And as you might imagine, the game made its way stateside thanks to European colonists. But despite the fact that Ben Franklin was a huge chess fan, the game really didn't catch on until the mid-19th century. And what turned the tide was that this American chess player, his name was Paul Morphy, he managed to beat all of Europe's chess champions in this international tournament. It was the first time this had ever happened. So people's patriotism just kind of kicked in at that point, and it did its thing. And from then on, chess became super popular in the U.S. Of course, not everyone was happy to see the game take off. And why is that? I mean, I I read this hilarious old article from this 1859 edition of Scientific American, And the author basically treats chess like this sinister, corrupting influence, almost like it's the fortnight of its time. And uh, so this is how the author describes this very real danger of chess. A pernicious excitement to learn and play chess has spread all over the country, and numerous clubs for practicing this game have been formed in cities and villages. Why should we regret this, it may be asked. We answer, chess is a mere amusement of a very inferior character which robs the mind of valuable time and might be devoted to nobler requirements while it affords no benefits whatever to the body. (laughs) A game of chess does not add a single new fact to the mind. It does not excite a single beautiful thought nor does it serve a single purpose for polishing and improving the nobler faculties.
3: Wow. You know, those were really Mm. the good old days when the greatest threat facing the youth of America was the pressure to join a chess club, when you think about it. (laughs) All right, well, now that we've heard from the critics, let's talk a little bit about some of the game's biggest proponents, which, of course, are the Russians. So, But before we get to them, let's take a quick break.
2: You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about the enduring appeal of one of the world's oldest games, chess. So, Will, one thing I noticed this week is that a suspiciously large number of top-ranking chess players all hail from Russia or some other Soviet republic, and that includes chess grandmasters like Anatoly Karpov, Garry Kasparov, and it really made me wonder, like, why do the Russians have such a dominance for chess? Well, it's interesting, and so I, I of course, was digging
3: into this in our research for this week, but... Chess first spread to Russia along the Persian and Indian trade routes, and that was way back in the 7th century or so. And it was popular from the start, but it didn't really become a national pastime until much later. We're talking like the 19th century or so. Now, this was during the Russian Revolution when Lenin and the Bolsheviks took power. And Lenin was a big player. I mean, he really loved the game and Stalin would be after him, but the real mastermind behind the country's chess movement was Lenin's commander of the Soviet army. This guy named Nikola Krylenko. Now he opened these dedicated chess schools, he organized competitions, and really paved the way for these first state-sponsored chess tournaments, and this was back in 1921. So you fast forward a decade and you've got roughly half a million amateur players that have signed up for these state chess programs. It's pretty remarkable how quickly it grew.
2: Yeah. So it sounds like there was this big push from the state and that's what sort of kickstarted Russia's love affair with chess. But why were all those Soviet leaders and thinkers so into chess in the first place? Like, was it just because it's a strategic game and, and they were kind of seen as great schemers?
3: You know, I'm guessing the strategy involved was a big part of the appeal for them. So that that's probably true. But I also read this article in Slate that suggested there might have been a little bit more to it. So I just will read a little bit of this. The author of the piece was Chris Beam, and he was describing the appeal of chess. So he writes, the Soviets saw chess as embodying their revolutionary ideals. It was a game of skill, and the USSR prided itself on intellectual talents. It was also cheap, which meant anyone could play it. And its back-and-forth dynamic reflected that dialectical concept of history espoused by Marxism. You know, never mind the irony of playing with imperialist symbols
2: like kings and queens. That is funny. You know, I, I hadn't thought about that, but... I know chess is hugely popular in Russia, even if it no longer has state money behind it. And there's actually this one famous chess supporter in particular who I want to talk about. Not only because he's done a lot to keep the game relevant for Russian citizens, but also because he's just a super weird guy. His name is Kyrson uh, Zinov, which I know I'm mispronouncing, but <laughs> he was president of the World Chess Federation from 1995 all the way up until just last year. And that's when he was finally ousted in favor of a new president. It's a pretty impressive run, though. What makes him such a weird guy? So there are actually a bunch of things, but honestly, they all kind of hinge on one in particular, which is that Kirsten claims that he was abducted by aliens. Oh, dear. And I'm just going to let him explain what happened. And this is what he said in an interview about a decade after the abduction. It happened on September 17, 1997. I was taken from my apartment in Moscow and taken to the spaceship, and we went to some star. And after that, I asked, "Please bring me back because the next day I should be back and go to the Ukraine." They said, "No problem, Kirsten. You have time. Oh no, no problem. That's, <laughs> yeah, I guess he got
3: nabbed by some considerate aliens. I mean, not every abductee is so lucky as that.
2: Yeah, usually there's more probings, but yeah <laughs> These weren't just any aliens. they were uh. The sophisticates that invented chess, apparently.
3: That's true. You know, I didn't realize that this was even a theory. So do people really think chess was created by aliens?
2: Well, at least one guy does. Because in that same interview, Kirsten went on to say, I am not a crazy man. My theory is that chess comes from space. Why? Because the same rules, 64 squares, black and white, and the same rules in Japan, in China, in Qatar, in Mongolia, in Africa, the rules are the same. Why? I think maybe it is from space. Oh, (laughs)
3: <laughs> I mean, I don't want to challenge somebody that was in power for that long, but I have to say his evidence feels a little bit thin to me. I mean, uh-huh. we just tracked the spread of chess across different continents, so I feel like jumping straight to the aliens theory feels a little <laughs> off to me for some reason.
2: So Kirson did leave the door open for at least one other possibility, and in this interview with Observer, he admitted that there were actually two options, and this is how he put it. Each year, archaeologists find evidence of chess in America, India, Japan, or China, played under the same rules, from a time without planes or the internet. Look, the chess board has 64 squares, and our cells are made of 64 pieces. <laughs> All this shows that chess comes either from God or from UFOs. So, to Kirsten, Simple you know... That. it's Yeah, it's basically a toss-up. Like, the only thing we know for certain is that chess wasn't invented by humans. It's such a strange story. I mean,
3: <laughs> why even tell people about this? I mean, the aliens just kind of took him on this joyride through the solar system and then dropped him off in time for a meeting. I mean, it seems pretty uneventful for what it could have been.
2: Yeah, but you've got to remember, he remained president of the Chess Federation for another 20 years after the incident. So I guess the story really didn't bother people. And as for the trip being uneventful, there was at least one part that had some real and lasting consequences. Oh, yeah? what what What's that? At some point during the journey, the alien suggested to Kirsten that it would be a really good idea for him to build this extravagant city dedicated to all things chess. And so he went home and did that. Wait, he built an actual chess city? Yeah. So at the time, Kirsten had this second job. He was president of the Republic of Kalmakia, which I guess is a subject of the Russian Federation. And using his clout as the leader, Kirsten was able to build his chess city on the east side of this Buddhist town called Alista. And he went all out, right? Like, the city has a chess museum, this uh, huge open-air chess board. It's got a swimming pool, enough chess sets to host year-round tournaments. It's actually hosted several championships in the year it was built, I guess, in uh, 1998. But Kirsten's real goal was to use Chess City to boost the popularity of the game so that the total number of chess players in the world would rise from 600 million, which I guess is where it is approximately now, to a full billion. Oh, wow. I mean, that seems like a big goal.
3: So what was so important about hitting a billion players?
2: Apparently, that's the number of players needed to stop aliens from destroying the planet.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it just gets weirder and weirder. So how did this guy stay in office for multiple decades?
2: I know. I I, I guess he was just really serious about it. And like, I don't know. I, I found this interview that he did with the Independent. This is back in 2010. And he kind of just flat out says that playing chess is the key to preventing this alien attack. And he writes, above us, they are all looking at us. And maybe they will get tired of us. And suddenly, he tails off, making dramatic gesture of destruction. How can we save ourselves from them? Only through intellect, concentration, and spiritual energy. If a billion people are in these chess centers playing chess, the world will still have positive energy. (laughs)
3: <laughs> all right. Well, I admit it. I mean, I'm invested in this now if the fate of the world is at stake on all this. But I, I have to know, did Kearsan get to a billion players? Like, did the Chess City work? It did not. So
2: uh. it, it, the whole thing is mostly vacant today, and it barely gets any use. And what's particularly sad about it is that Kearsan actually cut the town's food subsidies to help pay for this $50 million complex. So now Chess City is, is really just a monument to the local government's disregard for its citizens.
3: Yeah, well, that's a kind of a bummer. But, you know, I, I don't want to dwell on all these neglectful politicians or even the alien invasions, as weird as that story was. I'd, I feel like we should talk about a few chess stories that are a little more upbeat. What do you think?
2: I'm for it, but first a quick break.
1: This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool
4: in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers
2: Okay, well, so chess may not be our best hope for stemming off this alien invasion, but the game still has a whole lot going for it. Like, plenty of studies have shown that playing chess can improve your focus, it can help you hone your decision-making skills, and, of course, it's a great way to strengthen your memory, especially if you play it blindfolded. But before we get to the mental benefits, let's talk about some of the more surprising things we found out about the game and, and maybe we'd never noticed before.
3: You know, one thing that stood out to me is how resilient the game is. Like, it stands up to scrutiny more than just about any other game out there. You know, people over the years have tried to, I guess, like, solve chess for for decades and decades, but the game always seems to elude them. I mean, there's always another move you never considered, a new way to win or even lose at chess. And remember, that's true even after we built computers specifically designed to decode the game and... Really select the best possible move for millions and millions of different scenarios.
2: Isn't that exactly what it means to solve chess? Like uh, if we're able to compute every possible sequence of moves and counter moves and all these different forms a match can take, then isn't the game effectively solved? Well, I mean, that's actually the thing, because even if you had the most powerful computer in
3: the world, it still wouldn't be able to calculate all the unique games that could be played. And this just seems unimaginable, but the possibilities just scale up way too quickly. So, for example, after both players have moved one time in a game of chess, there are 400 possible board setups. But after the second of the turns, the number of possible games shoots up to just under 200,000. Now, after three moves, there are 121 million possible outcomes and so on and so on until you get to the current best estimate for the total possible number of chess games, which is a staggering 10 to the 120th power. So to put that number in perspective just a little bit, there was a great breakdown that I found from Popular Science, and here's what it says. There are only 10 to the 15th total hairs on all the human heads in the world. 10 to the 23rd grains of sand on Earth, and about 10 to the 81st atoms in the universe.
5: The number of typical chess
3: (laughs) games is many times as great as all those numbers multiplied together, an impressive feat for 32 wooden pieces lined up on a board.
2: That is unbelievable. You know, uh... When you look back at the kind of, like, endless complexity of the game, you know, it's really no wonder that it gives our brains such a workout. And I actually read this study from a while back that found that experts who play chess actually use both sides of the brain while solving chess problems, and not just the analytical right side.
3: Oh, wow. But this only happens in, I'm guessing, like, really experienced players?
2: That's right. So the researchers gathered eight international chess players and then eight novice players, and then they took fMRI brain scans while the subjects worked their way through two different tasks. And first, they had to identify geometrical shapes, and then they had to determine whether or not the pieces on the chessboard were in a check situation. And the results from these tests were really unexpected because they showed that while the novice players had only used the left side of the brain to process this task, the expert players had used both sides of the brain. So this is what the lead researcher explained. Quote, Once the usual brain structures were engaged, the experts utilized additional complementary structures in the other half to execute processes in parallel.
3: Wow. So did this dual processing improve the experts' performance at all?
2: Yeah, it actually made them much quicker at solving the chess problems than the novices were, but... It is worth noting that the parallel processing only occurred during the chess problems and not during that geometry task. So it really seems like all the extra practice that the experts had given their brains was this nice boost, but only when it came to chess.
3: You know, it's interesting to hear that because I I was actually reading about how playing a lot of chess can actually be a detriment to players sometimes, like rather than being beneficial to them. And how's that? Well, it's because of something called the Einstalung effect, which Scientific American describes as the brain's tendency to stick with solutions it already knows rather than look for potentially superior ones. So scientists researching this effect really love using chess players as subjects, and that's because they provide a really clear way to see the effect in action. So as an example of this, some studies present master chess players with a chessboard that has two possible solutions. You've got this well-known maneuver that can win the game in five moves, and a less common but actually much faster three-step solution. So the players were told to win the match in as few moves as possible. But once they had spotted this familiar five-step strategy, they actually seemed unable to recognize the much quicker solution. And it wasn't that the three-step move was really obscure or anything like that. But because those same players were actually presented with a similar setup where the three-step move was the only way to win – and then in that scenario, the players recognized the strategy right away. So in that first experiment, it really was the Einstehlung effect at work. And, you know, the players weren't able to see any of the other options because they had this cognitive bias for
2: the move they knew best. That's really fascinating. But I also like that even chess masters can learn something to do better the next time around because, like, there are that many possibilities. Like, I actually think that's why so many schools invest in their own chess programs. It's one of those rare hobbies that can boost your cognitive ability while also teaching you these coping skills, like how to win or lose gracefully. Although I, I do have to say, the one time my son got hit at school, it was in his first grade chess club. <laughs> he came home with dirt on his face, and I was like, Henry, how'd that happen? And he kind of gleefully said, oh, I took the second grader's queen, so he kicked me in the face.
3: <laughs> oh, poor Henry. <laughs> Seems like he was okay with that. He'd rather win than take yeah. the kick to
2: the
3: face. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, and there are so many places where they're teaching it really young to kids. Like in Armenia, for instance, chess is actually a required subject for every kid who's six years and older.
2: And that's kind of awesome. Even though it probably means the poor math teachers wind up pulling double duty and teaching chess as well, right? Yeah, but I have a feeling it's
3: worth it to them anyway, because, you know, as one Armenian teacher explained, chess trains logical thinking, it teaches how to make decisions, trains memory, strengthens willpower motivates children to win, and teaches them how to deal with defeat. It's the only school
2: subject that can do all of this. Oh, I really love that idea. Well, how about we knock out this fact off and and then get Tristan to show us some of his opening moves he's been perfecting? Mm -hmm. So for a while now, we've known that elite athletes tend to live longer than the rest of us, and that's really not that big of a surprise. But research now shows that elite chess players also have a survival advantage over the general population. A team of Australian researchers looked at players from 28 countries, and specifically over 1,000 players who reached international chess grandmaster status over a period of nearly 70 years. And then they compared the survival data of those people to 15,000 Olympic medalists. And not only did they find that both groups had significant survival advantages over the general population, but that the difference between the two was not even statistically significant. Oh, wow. That's
3: pretty interesting. All right. Well, years ago, I remember reading about how, you know, before the age of the Internet, people used to play chess by mail or what's called correspondence chess. Mm -hmm. So you'd make a move, put that move in the mail, and then your opponent would do the same and you'd go back and forth and games could take years to play. And actually, this kind of sounds fun to be able to do this with a friend who lives, you know, across the country or whatever. But what's surprising is that even today, the U.S. Chess Federation estimates they have about 3000 members still playing correspondence chess. Though now, of course, some play by email. And there are even tournaments for correspondence chess with rules like each player is given 30 days of reflection time over
2: 10 moves, you know, to really speed things up, I guess. (laughs) So I was reading recently about how chess became popular among captured or wounded soldiers during World War II. And, you know, the rules of war are so interesting to me sometimes. You, You remember learning about the Geneva Conventions, which are often thought of today as sort of the way war crimes are defined But in 1929, the third convention set out how prisoners of war would be treated. So in addition to how prisoners would be treated physically, it also had sections on recreation and stated that the captors should encourage the intellectual diversions and sports organized by prisoners of war. Which makes it not that surprising that a quiet game that could take hours or days to play and and was understood around the world could take off in a time like this. So organizations like the Red Cross would even send chess sets around the world to prisoners where there were even organized chess tournaments. And war is so weird, but I, I do think that one aspect is pretty cool.
3: Yeah. All right. Well, you mentioned earlier the similarities between elite athletes and chess players. Well, did you know that the World Chess Federation actually conducts drug tests and and they do this pretty routinely? And this is because there's a push for it to be part of the 2020 Olympics. And so this is actually required by the IOC. But there are some interesting studies around the effects of, you know, so-called smart drugs on the ability to play chess. Now, specifically, drugs like modafinil and Ritalin. So modafinil is a drug we've talked about actually in an episode, I guess it's been quite a while, but it's commonly Uh used to help with sleep disorders, and Ritalin is commonly used to treat things like ADHD. And the findings from some of the studies on these players was really interesting, because weirdly, players on these smart drugs were often losing more games than those who were not taking these. But this was actually because the players on them were taking more time per move and just running out of time. So once they took the time out as a factor, they found that these players were actually playing better. So as one of the researchers put it, these substances may be able to convert fast and shallow thinkers into deeper, but somewhat slower thinkers.
2: Huh. That's really interesting. Well, we talked about how long chess has been around, and I I was reading about some of the oldest strategy books on chess, and this one from way back in 1561 had some pretty awesome advice. The book suggests strategies such as playing with your back to the sun. Why? because that could blind your opponent. It also suggests that if you're playing by a fire at night, you should use your hand to create a shadow over the board so that your opponent won't be able to see his pieces clearly.
3: (laughs) Wow. You know, I had a couple of facts about weird chess tournaments and a couple of other things, but looking over there at Tristan and seeing the size of the smirk on his face, I've never seen him smirk that big because (laughs) I know he loves this fact because he loves to play dirty whenever he competes.
2: He plays so dirty. He's such a dirty
3: guy. But anyway, <laughs> I'm going to have to stop us there and give you today's trophy, Mango.
2: Thank you so much, Will.
3: All right. Well, if you've got any great stories about chess or any facts about chess that we may have left out today, we always love to hear those from you. You can email us, part genius at howstuffworks.com, or you can always hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. We're from Gabe, Tristan, Mango, and me. Thanks so much for listening. Time Genius is a production of how stuff works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand.
2: Tristan McNeil does the editing thing.
3: Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing.
2: <laughs> Jerry Rowland does the exec-producer thing.
3: Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams.
2: And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to
3: your ears. Good job, Eves! If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us.
2: Did we? Did we forget Jason? Jason who?